0: This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is the choices we make with money. In the first half, Stanley D. Neelaman shares his address, bridling mammon, harnessing the power of money in the service of virtue. Then in the second half, E. Jeffrey Hill speaks on money matters, living joyfully within your means.
1: Money is the medium uh, through which we engage the world, and as such uh, symbolizes our struggle to live in the world without uh, being corrupted uh, by the world. One of my uh, colleagues uh, alluded to that struggle recently when he uh, boldly declared that he had won his battle with money and no longer had any desire to be rich. But when I asked him if that meant uh, that he had all the money he wanted, he replied, oh, oh no, 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 I'd like to have more money, lots more money. Now, we'd all like to have more money. Uh, indeed, uh, our desire for money is so strong that often it is the determining factor in some of our most important decisions, including where to go to school, what to study, what career path to follow, where and, and what to, to, to uh, do as our life's work, whom to befriend, and sometimes even whom to marry. In the extreme, our desire for money may induce us to neglect uh, more important, uh, weightier matters, or even engage in unethical or illegal conduct. I suspect that's what the Apostle Paul had in mind when he characterized the love of money as, and I quote, the root of all evil, unquote, and observed that those burdened by it, that is, by the love of money, and I quote again, have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Our yearning for money in part is fueled by the popular myth so carefully cultivated by the commercial media that the capacity to consume high-quality goods and services is the measure of a happy and meaningful life. In that regard, uh, consider the Lexus commercial that concludes with the enticing observation, anyone who believes that money can't buy happiness hasn't driven a Lexus. Now, uh, there may be some truth to that, right? (laughs) Because our capacity to consume more and better goods and services is measured and limited by the amount of money at our disposal, it's not surprising that most of us believe that more money will bring us a greater sense of well-being and personal fulfillment. Of course, the fallacy on which that belief is based is that the physical, psychological, and social gratification associated with material abundance is the equivalent of the state of happiness promised by the plan of salvation. In the Savior's words, uh, as recorded in Luke, and I quote, A man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth, The Savior then vividly illustrates that principle in the parable of a farmer who had been blessed with a bumper crop. I'm quoting again. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall these things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The plight of this uh, successful but foolish farmer gives new meaning to the old adage that a fool and his money are soon parted. Or is it uh, a fool and his money are some party? (laughs) (laughs) The parable also uh, calls to mind the the old story about uh, the robber who confronts his uh, victim with the demand, your money or your life, to which uh, the victim responds, take my life, I'm saving my money for retirement. The central message of this parable is that while the pursuit, accumulation, and expenditure of money may bring temporal comfort, enjoyment, and even some security, it can't uh, of itself produce that happiness which is the promise and end of our existence as children of a divine and eternal Heavenly Father. The term happiness in the gospel sense embodies a mix of spiritual attributes that defies precise description. Attempts to identify the elements of happiness commonly allude to such qualities of being as love, joy, peace, bliss, contentment, enlightenment. For present purposes, suffice it to say that true happiness is that profound sense of spiritual well-being that is the product of living our lives in harmony with our core values as those values are informed and shaped by our devotion to and desire to please God. It follows that if we pursue and spend money to ends that contravene our gospel-based values, we will, be, we will experience a sense of alienation and diminished well-being. It does not follow, however, that the pursuit and expenditure of money are vain endeavors that should be eschewed in favor of more virtuous activities. On the contrary, prudent involvement in financial matters provides a rich and varied context in which gospel principles can be expressed, validated, and understood. In that sense, the accumulation and expenditure of money can at least facilitate the attainment of happiness. Proper perspective is the key to pursuing and spending money to worthy ends— If we view money primarily as a means of experiencing the self-indulgent pleasures associated with consuming goods and services, we likely will save little, borrow excessively, and, in the end, find ourselves dependent on others for financial security. If we believe that having money is the proper measure of success and self-worth, we likely will pursue it obsessively, hoard it anxiously, and, in the end, curse it mournfully. In neither case will our financial endeavors yield any appreciable contribution to our spiritual growth. Consider in that regard King Solomon's reflections on his quest for personal fulfillment through the pursuit of pleasure and the construction of grand monuments to himself and his reign. And I quote Therefore, I hated life because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me, for it is vanity and vexation of spirit. King Solomon's undisciplined spending of the royal treasure brought him momentary pleasure and lasting emptiness and pain. Following the lament, uh, he declares, and I quote again, For God giveth to a man that is good in his sight wisdom and knowledge and joy. How can we engage the world through its principal medium of exchange and still be good in God's sight? The answer to that question is suggested by the Savior's parable of the dishonest steward, found in the 16th chapter of Luke. The parable is about a man who was entrusted with the management of another man's wealth. His master, upon learning that the steward had violated that trust, summarily discharged him. In response, the steward compounded his offense by partially forgiving his master's debtors their debts. His objective was to gain the debtor's favor so that they would, and I quote, welcome him into their houses, close quote. In commenting on the steward's behavior, the Savior observes that the children of the world are in their generation wiser than the children of the light. He then admonishes his disciples to use money to make friends, quote, that when ye fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. In admonishing his disciples to imitate the steward's shrewdness, the Savior is not condoning the steward's dishonest uh, behavior. Rather, he is simply suggesting that although money is often acquired by dishonest means and employed to unrighteous ends, it can also be used as a means of establishing and nurturing meaningful personal relationships through which we can connect with the saving power of the gospel. Please understand, the Savior is not suggesting that we should use money to buy friends, nor is he implying that it is appropriate for us to take advantage of another's loneliness by feigning affection in return for financial reward. Manipulation, exploitation, and insincerity have no place in the foundation of eternal relationships. What he is saying is that our wealth, be it meager or abundant and however acquired, is a gift to us for use in blessing those who come within the sphere of our influence. As we honor that trust, we necessarily will establish and strengthen bonds of eternal fellowship both with those who are the objects of our munificence and with the Savior himself. And when we fail—that is, when we die and our money is no longer of any utility— they will stand as our friends to welcome us into eternal habitations. Before turning to the practical significance of viewing money as an instrument of social virtue, permit me to sound a note of caution. As inhabitants of a society that extols personal gain as its defining value— we are culturally conditioned to assess the worth of ourselves and others based on financial success. To succumb to that inclination and justify doing so by paying lip service to a higher purpose is to turn principle into platitude and forfeit the opportunity to gain true riches. In the Savior's words to the covetous Pharisees, quote, ye are they which justify yourselves before men. But God knoweth your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. To avoid money's corrupting influence, we must love only God and our fellow men and embrace only virtue as the defining and motivating force in our lives. If we do so, we will define and validate our financial objectives with reference to gospel principles. We will not spend time accumulating additional wealth if to do so will leave insufficient time to tend to more important matters. We will strike a balance between saving and consumption that best serves our immediate and long-range gospel-based priorities. We will seize opportunities to use our wealth to enhance the personal growth and well-being of the members of our families, and to address the needs of our neighbors and our communities. An essential first step in redirecting our financial endeavors to virtuous ends is to formulate a personal financial plan based on gospel principles. The gospel principles that will govern the formulation of such a plan include self-reliance, gratitude, integrity, stewardship, prudence, justice, loyalty, trust, tolerance— kindness, compassion, sacrifice, generosity. The strategic elements of a plan founded on and informed by those principles necessarily will include, first, generating sufficient disposable income to maintain a comfortable but prudent standard of living for ourselves and our families. Second, enhancing and maintaining our earning capacity through the pursuit of education and the development of good work skills and habits. Third, avoiding debt as a means of financing consumption. Third, implementing a savings and investment program to meet anticipated expenditures and provide a source of capital to compensate for our diminishing earning capacity as we age. Fifth, faithfully paying our tithes and offerings. And sixth, employing our surplus to foster and reward virtue in our families, in our neighborhoods, and in the larger society. I'd like to comment uh, on each of those elements of a gospel-based financial plan. First, uh, maintaining a prudent standard of living. Our standard of living corresponds to the amount of goods and services we consume. Most of us strive for levels of consumption that will not only meet our basic needs for food, clothing, shelter, healthcare, and education, but also provide us with the comforts widely enjoyed by those in the mainstream of economic life. In establishing an appropriate standard of living, wisdom, foresight, moderation, self-discipline should be our guiding principles. Certainly we should follow the prophet's repeated admonition to live within our means But we should also have the foresight to curtail current consumption in order to accumulate sufficient savings to finance our anticipated needs and wants and obligations as defined by our personal financial plan. Enhancing personal earning capacity. Our earning capacity is based on the market value of our personal services and the quantity of our invested capital. Early in our economic life cycle, earnings from personal services represent our principal source of income. Later in life, as our physical and mental capacities wane, income from invested capital supplements and eventually replaces earnings from personal services as the measure of our earning capacity. Accordingly, it is imperative that we attain the level of education and develop the mix of marketable skills necessary to enable us to produce sufficient income and savings to fund both our current and anticipated needs and wants and obligations. To paraphrase Ben Franklin, we should pour our money into our heads where the interest rate will be high and those who would take it from us are unable to do so. Of course, uh, if we determine that uh, our interests and aptitudes make us unsuited to the kind of career that will sustain our desired level of production, we should moderate our needs and wants. A higher standard of living is not worth spending our working life in a job we dislike or to which we are not uh, well suited. To paraphrase uh, Bob Dylan, uh, <laughs> Um, We're successful if we're able to get up in the morning, go to bed at night, and in between do the things we like to do. Uh, In choosing a career, the governing principle should be follow your bliss. Avoiding debt. When our income is insufficient to meet uh, our perceived needs and wants, we may be tempted to resort to consumer debt to make up the shortfall. And it's so easy, isn't it? We're we're bombarded by offers of pre-approved credit cards, so-called paycheck loans, and financing arrangements with zero down and no payments until next year. But rarely is it advisable to fund consumption through borrowing. Debt must be repaid with interest. It thus serves to limit the borrower's capacity to fund consumption in the future, and the high rates of interest associated with consumer debt significantly increase the cost of current consumption. In the words of J. Reuben Clark, Once in debt, interest is your companion every minute of the day and night. You cannot shut it or slip away from it. You cannot dismiss it. It yields neither to entreaties, demands, or orders. And whenever you get in its way or cross its course or fail to meet its demands, it crushes you. More recently, President Hinckley's expressed alarm over the crushing debt load of members of the Church and concluded with the following admonition. I quote: I urge you to be modest in your expenditures, discipline yourselves in your purchases to avoid debt to the extent possible, pay off debt as quickly as you can, and free yourselves— From bondage. Of course, not all debt is inappropriate. Generally, it is prudent to incur debt to finance our education and the development and maintenance of work skills. We can also defend borrowing to finance tools and equipment, a personal automobile, and a personal residence. But of course, even when borrowing is justified in principle, prudence dictates that we should incur no more debt than we can comfortably pay and that we should pay it off as quickly as possible. Saving and investing. To ensure that there will be sufficient income from investments to replace our diminishing income from personal services, it is important to regularly save and invest a portion of our income from personal services. In formulating our savings and investment strategy, prudence should be our guiding principle. A prudent investor invests with a view toward preservation rather than speculation. He understands the relationship between risk and return and appreciates the wisdom of diversification. When presented with the prospect of high returns, he does not let greed blind him to the associated risk or induce him to invest more than is warranted. A prudent investor also understands that past performance is not necessarily an accurate predictor of future performance. There are just too many imponderables and too much randomness in the financial markets to assume that we can accurately forecast investment results based solely on past performance. In my personal experience, the only prediction that can be made with reasonable certainty is that if I invest in it, the value goes down. Some seek to justify their imprudent investment decisions on the ground that the Lord will ensure their success because of their righteous lives. I hope no one here believes that there is necessarily a direct correlation between righteousness and financial success. In an economy that tolerates market manipulation, insider trading, and questionable accounting practices, the unrighteous will continue to get rich. While we should count whatever financial success we achieve as a blessing, we make a grave mistake if we use it as a sign that we have found favor with God. Paying tithes and offerings. As the source of all of our gifts and blessings, our Heavenly Father has first claim on our income and accumulated wealth, and yet He requires of us only tithes and offerings payment of a full and honest tithe and generous fast offerings uh, is a way of acknowledging our dependence on God for all of our sustenance. It is also an expression of trust in Him and His promise that if we pay our tithing, He will bless us. While in graduate school, Sister Neelaman and I, like many of you today, had to make do on very meager income—so meager, in fact, that, that I couldn't see how we could stay in school and also pay our tithing. Sister Neelaman, uh my divine intervention, alarmed by my faithless attitude, uh, insisted that we counsel with the bishop, and the bishop, after listening to my rationalizations, made me an offer I couldn't refuse. He said, Pay your tithing each month, and if you don't have enough to meet your other obligations, I'll personally make up the shortfall. I readily agreed to the terms. <laughs> But then he administered the coup de grace. Brother Neelaman, why are you so willing to trust me to meet your needs and so unwilling to trust the Lord? And his words uh, struck hard and knocked me firmly onto the path to a lifetime of tithing faithfulness. I've since learned that Bishop Goodsell's ploy did not originate with him and is commonly employed by bishops to encourage reluctant tithe payers, but it nevertheless serves as a constant reminder to me that the payment of tithing is a matter of faith and trust and has priority over all other expenditures. Spending in Pursuit of Virtue Our expenditures for goods and services have consequences beyond the immediate satisfaction of our needs and wants. To understand those consequences is to appreciate the power of money as an instrument for fostering virtue in our communities and the larger society. In a society founded on the principles of democratic capitalism, the conscious expenditure of money often has a greater influence on the formulation of public policy, the allocation of resources, and the development and maintenance of public morality than does the exercise of our right to vote. Consider, for example, the tremendous influence lobbyists for major corporations and trade groups have on the outcomes of elections, legislative debates, and administrative deliberations. The lobbyists' salaries are paid from coffers filled with dollars spent by us for the goods and services their corporate employers offer for sale to the consuming public. Consider also the effect our expenditures have on the allocation of resources and the content of entertainment. Companies design their products and services based on demand, and if we don't like what they offer, we should simply refuse to buy. If enough of us exercise our franchise in that manner, the products and services will change to our liking. In exercising our franchise as consumers of goods and services, we should not underestimate the power of advertising in shaping our preferences. Through sophisticated sales pitches and so-called atmospheric techniques, purveyors of goods and services assail us with seductive messages that appeal to our vanity and our desire to belong and our need for approval. The best defense against commercial manipulation is to pay attention to both the message and our reaction to it. Such mindfulness will not only reveal the manipulative power of advertisements and commercial programming— It will also leave us free to make our buying decisions based on principle rather than emotion. The ultimate test of our commitment to stewardship as the framework for our relationship with money is our willingness to apply our surplus in pursuit of virtuous causes. A worthy steward uses the resources entrusted to Him to further the Master's purposes. With respect to our financial surplus, our Heavenly Father is the Master— and his purpose is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of his children. To that end, he expects us to seek and seize opportunities to generously share our abundance in ways that will enhance the self-reliance and spiritual well-being, first of those who are of the household of faith and then of others who cross our paths. All of us, in some manner and degree, have been both the benefactors and the beneficiaries of such selflessness— And in the process, we have gained true and enduring friends with whom we will find place in eternal habitations. In conclusion, I direct your attention once again to the 16th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. In verses 10 through 12, the Savior emphasizes the relationship between the proper use of our material blessings and our prospects for eternal life. I quote: He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If, therefore, ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if ye have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? Close quote. The measure of our faithfulness in respect to our relationship with mammon comes down to our willingness to deal justly with our neighbor. To deal justly means to give each person with whom we have commerce his due as a child of God. It means giving our employer a day's work for a day's pay. It means marketing ourselves and our wares without pretense or puff. It means competing fairly and honestly. It means eschewing techniques that take advantage of a potential customer's naivete or other vulnerability. It means paying our taxes and other obligations. It means being generous in our tithes and offerings. It means sharing our abundance with those in need, expecting nothing in return. Only if we deal with others on that basis will the Lord entrust to us the true riches of which He speaks. To that end, may we be blessed. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen.
0: You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is The Choices We Make With Money. We've just heard from Stanley D. Nealeman. After the break, we'll return with E. Jeffrey Hill for Money Matters, Living Joyfully Within Your Means. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is the choices we make with money, Next is E. Jeffrey Hill, a professor in the BYU School of Family Life at the time of this address. Titled, Money Matters, Living
2: Joyfully Within Your Means. Each year I teach almost a thousand BYU students about family finance in SFL 260. Oddly enough, the purpose of this course is not to teach students how to get rich. Instead, the goal is to help students gain a stewardship perspective and wisely manage money to joyfully strengthen family relationships. As a bonus, this class fulfills the quantitative reasoning general education requirement. (laughs) At the beginning of each semester, I tell my class to remember three things, and I invite you to do the same. First, life is hard. But you can do hard things. With the help of the Lord, you can do anything He wants you to do, even balance a budget or invest in a mutual fund. Second, when life doesn't go as planned, don't get frustrated. Make the best of it. Most of the time, things don't go as planned, especially in financial matters. And if you don't make the best of it, you'll spend most of your life feeling frustrated. And finally, third, T, T, T. Things take time. In fact, the best financial plan is the get rich slowly plan where you safely and systematically invest. Whenever I talk about finances, I'm reminded of a story I heard about a college freshman who didn't budget very well. He kept running out of money before he ran out of month. One night, the student texted home, no mun, no fun, your son. His wise father texted right back, how sad, too bad, your dad. <laughs> I hope my talk this morning will help you avoid the plight of this student. The title of my devotional today is Money Matters, Living Joyfully Within Your Means. To introduce this theme, I would like to get personal and briefly share some things I have learned over my lifetime about money and joyful living. A long, long, long time long time ago, Juanita Ray and I met while attending BYU. We played racquetball together, courted for a time, and were married in the temple. As newlyweds, we had no money. We lived in a tiny two-room apartment with low ceilings. We bought clothes from DI, and we ate her family's food storage. (laughs) We drank powdered milk for almost a year. Yuck. But we had each other, we had our love, and we had the gospel. It was a good year. We learned you don't need a lot of money to be happy. I graduated, got a good job, and we started drinking whole milk. (laughs) I had been taught to pay 10% to the Lord, save 10% to invest, and live on the rest. Juanita and I did this as we created our family budgets over the years. We were fruitful, and after 25 years, we had lots of kids who filled our mortgage-free home. We also had solid investments. We learned about the miracle of compound interest. If you consistently save a little money and invest it in a broad stock market fund, that money naturally multiplies. Children and grandchildren— also multiply. (laughs) (laughs) Then came the hard part. Though Juanita and I were financially set for a long life together, and we anticipated many missions, lots of travel, and lots of grandkids, life didn't go as planned. Juanita got cancer. She fought valiantly, but cancer won. I learned that there are some things that matter much more than money, and I learned the hard way that you can't take it with you. After Juanita died, I was a lonely, single dad. I couldn't sleep. I got angry easily. I didn't eat well. To compensate, I wasted a lot of money. I learned how foolish it is to spend when you are hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. Then a miracle happened. God sent me an amazing, beautiful widow named Tammy Mulford. It was so fun to be dating again and to have money this time. <laughs> Tammy and I fell in love and were married in the temple. What pure joy. What a good woman. It takes a remarkable person marry a stuffy old BYU professor with so many kids. Juanita and I are both eternally grateful to Tammy. It is never easy to join two families like we did, but Tammy and I have learned that money is useful when you are blending a large family, especially one with 12 children, six in-laws, and 21 grandchildren. One final note. When the kids were older, Tammy took the initiative to go back to graduate school. Now she blesses many as an excellent marriage and family therapist and an adjunct professor right here at BYU. This was only an option because we had the financial resources to do it. We learned that money makes important things possible. Okay, that's my life story. Let's get back to today's theme. Money matters, living joyfully within your means. Finances can be perplexing for many of us, but this morning I hope to make them a little simpler. I will first briefly explore why money matters to families. Then I will share five practices to help you live within your means and thus claim the blessings of joy. This is exciting. Let's get started. First, money matters. The choices we make with money are at the heart of mortality's test. Will we choose to waste our resources upon transitory pleasures? Or will we choose to serve others and build up the kingdom of God? Will we choose to act on impulse and burden ourselves with debt? Or will we act prudently so that money becomes a tool for family joy and not the cause of stress and worry? Money matters to a husband and wife in their marital relationship. Indeed, much research shows that financial difficulties are often associated with marital stress and even divorce. Dr. Bernard Poduska reflected the saying, Married for better or worse, or until debt do us part, seems to reflect today's marital realities more accurately than does the traditional vow. A word of advice for those seeking an eternal mate. And you know who you are. (laughs) An important criterion for a future spouse is the way they handle money. Money also matters to parents and children. Parents have a sacred responsibility to rear their children in love and righteousness, and this includes teaching their children about finances. Elder Joseph B. Worthland taught, Too many of our youth get into financial difficulty because they never learn proper principles of financial common sense at home. Teach your children while they are young. There are many ways parents can teach children about money—one practice our family adopted was to establish a family bank. Until they graduate from high school, our children may invest their money in and borrow money from the family bank. Money invested earns 10% interest per month, compounded monthly. Wow, that's a good deal. (laughs) Money borrowed, though, also costs 10% interest, compounded monthly. This arrangement quickly teaches children that the smart decision is to save and earn interest, and that the foolish decision is to borrow and pay interest. Though money is important, we must view its purpose with an eternal perspective. Money is meant to be a means for serving our families and our God. When consecrated to those purposes, it is of great worth. However, when money becomes an end unto itself, it derails us from our eternal purposes. When we focus too much of our time, talents, and energy on making money, we sin. The Apostle Paul taught this. The love of money is the root of all evil. Okay, you've seen how money matters. Now let's look at living joyfully within your means— We must build our financial houses upon the rock of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Fortunately, our prophets, seers, and revelators, Christ's representatives on the earth, have given us clear financial guidance. I have distilled five distinct themes from their messages over the years. One, create, use, and update a family budget. Two, minimize and eventually eliminate debt. 3. Invest early, consistently, and wisely to build a financial reserve. 4. Don't do dumb things with your money. (laughs) And 5. Be generous and share your resources with others. In a recent First Presidency message, President Thomas S. Monson taught these practices succinctly. We encourage you to look to the condition of your finances. We urge you to discipline yourselves in your purchases to avoid debt. Pay off debt as quickly as you can and free yourselves from this bondage. Save a little money regularly to gradually build a financial reserve. And I imagine President Monson chuckled as he wrote, Many more people could ride out the storm-tossed waves in their economic lives if they had a supply of food and clothing and were debt-free. Today, we find that many have followed this counsel in reverse. They have a supply of debt and are (laughs) food-free. Let's examine more closely these five practices that can help you move toward joyfully living within your means. The first practice is to create, use, and continually update a budget. Elder Robert D. Hales taught, We help our children to be provident providers by establishing a family budget. We should regularly review our family income, savings, and spending plan in family council meetings. A budget is simply a plan for how you are going to spend the money that is available to you. Everyone." including you, should have a budget. To create a budget, you simply determine your spendable income, allocate it to different categories of expenses. Then you track your actual spending against your budget. A budget is a living document that is modified as conditions warrant. I personally suggest that every budget should allocate at least 10% tithes and offerings, and that most budgets should allocate at least 10 percent to long-term savings. You can find sample budgets on numerous intersites, such as the Marriott School's excellent site, personalfinance.byu.edu. In my mind, the most overlooked budget category is miscellaneous. Unexpected expenses always come up that don't fit neatly in your budget categories perhaps a large car repair, or, heavens forbid, a root canal, or here at BYU, maybe an engagement ring. (laughs) In marriage relationships, both husband and wife should have a say in budget creation. In many marriages, one partner is a saver and the other partner is a spender. You might ask yourself what you are. But both play an important role in their marriage— Early in marriage, it is a great blessing when the saver can help the spender stay within the budget. Elder Robert D. Hales poignantly illustrated this point in the following story. We were newly married and had very little money. I saw a beautiful dress in a store window and suggested to my wife that if she liked it, we would buy it. Mary went into the dressing room of the store. After a moment, the sales clerk came out, brushed by me, and returned the dress to its place in the window. As we left the store, I asked my wife, What happened? She replied, It was a beautiful dress, but we can't afford it. Those words went straight to my heart. Elder Hales finished the story by saying, I have learned that the three most loving words are, I love you, And the four most caring words for those we love are, we can't afford it. The spender can also play an important role in the marriage. If after a period of time the family is doing well financially, the spender can take the lead in budgeting for some special expenditures that would strengthen relationships, perhaps a second honeymoon or a nice family vacation. I invite each of you— to create, use, and update some form of a budget for the rest of your life. The second practice is to minimize and eventually eliminate debt. President Thomas S. Monson recently quoted President J. Reuben Clark Jr. when he said, Once in debt, interest is your companion. Every minute of the day and night, you cannot shun it or slip away from it. And whenever you get in its way or cross its course or fail to meet its demands, it crushes you. So, is any debt legitimate? The Council of Church Leaders on Debt was recently summarized by Elder Robert D. Hales. Some debt incurred for education, a modest home, or a basic automobile may be necessary to provide for a family. I might add that necessary debt for a BYU education usually pays off quite well. A recent study revealed that the cost of a BYU education had the highest return on investment of any university in Utah. Go Cougars. (laughs) Here, I would like to interject what I believe is the biggest financial mistake made by recent BYU graduates it's buying a house that is beyond their means. There is a reason for this problem. When you apply for a mortgage loan, you are asked about your debts. Tithing represents a debt worth 10 percent of your income, reducing the amount you can afford for a house payment. Please treat 10 percent of your income as a debt when considering how much you can really afford to pay for a home. Now, if you already have debts, The key is to include a debt repayment category in your budget. The money allocated to this category is applied each month as an extra payment to the debt with the highest interest rate until it is eliminated. Again, personalfinance.byu.edu has excellent advice on this topic. The prophetic counsel is clear, but sometimes temptations are very challenging even after being debt-free for years. Let me make a confession here and share another personal experience. Tammy and I have committed to follow the prophet and live debt-free within our means. We don't have any mortgage nor any other debt. We do make a car payment each month, but instead of paying a car dealership, we make a deposit in our own car savings account. A little while ago, we took about four years of car savings and went shopping for a new car. We really liked a base model Toyota, and it fit our budget perfectly. We thought we were ready to buy, but then the salesman showed us the next model up. It was much nicer, but was a little more than what we had saved. But then, and this was the temptation, we were led to a top-of-the-line model, a real dream machine. Now, I've never really been infatuated with cars, but driving that vehicle was a transcendent experience. (laughs) It was so smooth, so powerful, I wanted it, I really wanted it, and Tammy wanted it too. We had just one problem. The car cost much more than what we had in our car savings. The salesperson enthusiastically showed us that with our large down payment, our monthly car payment would be a pittance, very affordable. What would be wrong with a little debt if we could get what we wanted now? We wouldn't be irresponsible. We were so tempted. Fortunately, Tammy and I don't make major financial decisions on the spot. We talk about it, pray about it, sleep on it, and make the final decision when we're fresh and hopefully more inspired. So we went home and tried to talk ourselves into this brief excursion into debt, but, alas, we didn't feel good about it, so we decided to wait. When I told this story to my family finance class at BYU, one student asked, Dr. Hill, why don't you just buy a used version of the car that you want? It's better financially anyway. He was right. It is more economical to buy a used, low-mileage car than to buy a new car. I got excited. Right after class, I searched (laughs) Carfax.com and found a beautiful car with low miles in Rexburg, Idaho that fit our budget. My dad lives in Rexburg, so I asked him to take a test drive. He called back and said that was the best car he'd ever driven. (laughs) If I didn't buy it, he would. I bought the car on the spot, over the phone, on condition that my wife would approve it, though I knew she would. (laughs) Our anniversary was coming up, so I decided to surprise Tammy. I asked her to give me 24 hours to celebrate with a little getaway. We packed our bags and headed north on I-15. Tammy kept guessing where we were headed, and it's impossible to get anything over on Tammy. But this time I did. But I just kept saying to her, "Uh, you'll just have to see where we're going, dear. She had no clue. When we neared the car dealership, I said, hey, let's just stop here for a moment. We walked into the showroom, and there was our gorgeous, new-looking used car, (laughs) draped in happy anniversary balloons. Tammy squealed in delight and nearly hyperventilated. But a few seconds later, she got her breath, and she got concerned, and she protested, but Jeff, we can't afford this new car. When she heard that we could pay cash for this used car, she hugged me, gave me a kiss, and said I was the smartest husband ever. (laughs) That is an experience I will always remember. I can honestly tell you that when you are true to a commitment to live debt-free within your means, you can live joyfully and claim blessings. The third practice is to invest early, consistently, and wisely to build a financial reserve. Elder Joe J. Christensen said in the April 1999 General Conference, There are those with average incomes who, over a lifetime, do amass some means— and there are those who receive large salaries who do not. What is the difference? It is simply spending less than they receive, saving along the way, and taking advantage of the power of compound interest. Albert Einstein is quoted as saying, compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. I invite my students in class, and I invite you today— to begin to invest now. If you don't have much money, that's okay. You can start as small as one dollar a month, automatic withdrawal from your checking account through some mutual funds that cater to the small investor. However, in this regard, it is very important to remember that though money matters, it is simply a means to do something more important. Having a lot of money when you retire because you have made wise investments is meaningless in and of itself. The money only has value as it is used to do God's work with your family and elsewhere. The next practice is simply, don't do dumb things with your money. When dealing with money, use your common sense. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. My first suggestion is to avoid speculation. Speculation is any investment that promises a greater-than-market-rate return. Most of these are scams or extremely high-risk ventures. In a letter from the First Presidency, members of the Church were warned about those who use relationships of trust to promote risky or even fraudulent investment and business schemes. My next suggestion is to avoid home equity loans. When property values go down, home equity loans can lead you to be upside down in your home. Now, this doesn't mean you are standing on your head in your living room. It does mean you cannot sell your home for what you owe on it. When that happens, you become a prisoner in your home because you can't sell it. Worse yet, many in this situation have lost homes because they couldn't afford the payments when financial challenges occurred. Please, in the future and now, be very careful when considering a home equity loan. Another suggestion is to avoid impulse purchases. I recommend you make a policy to never make a major purchase on the spot. Go home. Have dinner. Talk about it with your spouse or someone else that you trust. Pray about the decision and decide later whether or not to make the purchase. You can remember this advice with the acronym HALT. Tea. Don't make major purchases when you are hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. The final practice for living joyfully within your means is to be generous and share your resources with others. The prophet Jacob provides us with some excellent counsel about riches and how they should be used. But before ye seek for riches, seek ye for the kingdom of God. And after ye have obtained a hope in Christ, ye shall obtain riches if ye seek them, and ye will seek them for the intent to do good. We have a special responsibility to bless the poor with our resources. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland eloquently taught us that we are to do what we can to deliver any that we can from poverty that holds them captive and destroys so many of their dreams. Contributions to the Church beyond tithing can be helpful, Elder Holland also said, Be as generous as circumstances permit in your fast offering and other humanitarian, educational, and missionary contributions. There are also so many ways to use your means personally in anonymous and ad hoc giving. Just one example— Tammy has taught me to be much more generous when we go out to eat. She was a waitress earlier in life, so she is very aware of how much work servers do just to make ends meet. She has encouraged me to stop being stingy and to be generous in my tipping. I have to tell you, it feels so good to give an unexpectedly large tip. I appreciate Tammy's generous spirit. I invite you to be thoughtful and prayerful as you find ways to be generous and share with your resources with others. I promise that you'll feel joy as you do so. Okay, we've had a good talk today. Let me conclude with a quote in my testimony. Elder Robert D. Hales taught, We must practice the principles of provident living joyfully living within our means, being content with what we have, avoiding excessive debt, and diligently saving and preparing for rainy day emergencies. Brothers and sisters, I have a testimony that when we understand that money matters and when we take the time to budget, eliminate debt, invest wisely, make smart decisions, and share our resources— we receive both material and spiritual blessings. I testify that we must build our financial homes upon the rock of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we do this, when the rains of recessions descend, the floods of layoffs come, and the winds of high interest rates blow and beat upon our houses, our houses will not fall for they will be founded upon the rock of Jesus Christ. I invite you, I plead with you to live joyfully within your means for the rest of your life. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
0: You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was The Choices We Make With Money, with thoughts from Stanley D. Nealeman and E. Jeffrey Hill. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.